Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 7, if you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. Um, if you don't have one at home, feel free to grab one on the res- at the resource table on the way out. I'd love for you to have one. Uh, my name is Pastor Matt. If we haven't met, love to meet you after the service. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to looking at this passage with you for just a few minutes. Uh, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 7. It's a long passage, so we're not going to read the whole thing. I encourage you to maybe read it at home. Um, But we'll be reading a portion of it today. So we'll start at chapter 7, verse 1. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. After his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him. Though he had no child, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. Now if you skip down to verse 51, we'll pick up there. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of your fathers, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, every culture, every time frame have different words or different topics uh, that are called uh, taboo, things that we don't talk about or discuss in polite company. A hundred years ago, that word might have been sex. You know, people didn't talk about sex. In our culture, that's kind of changed. And some have argued that there's only one last word that's taboo, and that word is death. We don't like to talk about death. We don't like to think about it. We like to avoid observing it or having any relation to death. Anyone who mentions death, we say they're morbid. When a loved one mentions death, they, you know, we try to change the subject maybe. We think, well, we want you to be with us forever. We don't want to think about it. We put it off. And people put it off whether you're really young. You know, if you're an 18-year-old kid, you think to yourself, well, I've got, you know, maybe 50-plus years ahead of me, so I don't need to think about it right now. But it's also true for older people as well. Older people like to put it off and not think about it as well. Anthropologist Anita Haneg says this, that death has become something Americans avoid and abhor, an enemy to be defeated is evident elsewhere too. Just look at the plethora of contemporary fantasies of immortality, which range from anti-aging creams 
to efforts to download a person's brain so he or she can continue to live virtually, to cryonics, the practice of freezing and storing bodies or body parts in the hope that future scientists will thaw them, bring them back to life. And what's interesting about our kind of uncomfortableness with the topic of death and our avoidance and putting it off is that it wasn't necessarily true of us in the United States 100 years ago, and it's not necessarily true in other cultures. Uh, For example, in uh, West Papua, Indonesia, uh, they regularly talk about their own demise, even in everyday conversation. Uh, one, another anthropologist, Rupert Stosh, says this, they often speak spontaneously of themselves as being in the process of dying. He says, aged men, if they are awake before dawn, often sing softly about their upcoming deaths. These people think of the inevitable mortality as their main reason for having children and consider children as their replacements or their body matches. We don't think of death in that way in American culture. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, think of it this way. Let's say this afternoon you go to a friend's house and you walk in the door of your friend's house and you go to the foyer and you see there's a bed there with a body on it. And you start to freak out a little bit. You start to wonder who your friend really is. But you sheepishly ask them, so who is this? What's going on here? And they matter-of-factly say, well, it's my mother. Uh, she died a couple days ago, and we just prepared the body, and we're waiting for um, the coffin to be built. Now, I don't know about you, but that's the kind of stuff that's in my uh, nightmares. I would freak out if I experienced something like that. Most, most of us probably would. But 100-plus years ago, just up to the time of the Civil War, that was a common practice when someone would pass away The body would be washed by their family, uh, prepared by the family, put on a bed uh, or a cot. Visitors would come to the house, and someone from the community would build the coffin. We don't experience death in the same way today. Most of us, unless we're in the medical field, probably have limited experience with death. As soon as a person dies, the undertaker comes, takes them away, takes them to the funeral home, And with the advent of uh, cremation and closed funerals, oftentimes uh, those people just kind of disappear from our life. We don't experience death like they did in that time frame. You You might not even see them after they die. So what has changed? How does how has our culture moved in this direction to be uncomfortable about talking about death? Well, there's two possible reasons. One reason is what uh, experts have called the medicalization of death. And that's this idea that death is something that we can avoid. And so with the advent of modern medicine and uh, advanced medical techniques, we, you know, if someone is sick, we take them to the hospital in hopes that they will be healed, in hopes that they won't die. But then if they pass away, it's seen almost as a failure of the medical system that if only the doctor would have known something different, if he would have known a different treatment. If only we would have went sooner or if only they would have had a healthier lifestyle. And it's kind of viewed not as an inevitable result of life, but something that somehow is an accident or something that can be avoided. But there's something, I think, bigger in play. And I think the bigger element is play is, is the secularization of our culture. In the United States, we no longer have this kind of Christian worldview that informs how we view life. And because of this 
loss of this Christian worldview and the secularization of culture, I think what happens is that when people view life, we view life as somewhat logical. But we view death as completely illogical. I mean, think about it this way. We live on this kind of bell curve. You know, we, from 0 to 18, we don't know anything. We grow, we learn, we prepare for living life. After 18, we graduate from high school. Maybe we go to college, maybe we don't. If we go to college, maybe we go for two to eight plus years. After college, maybe we, we get into our career. We might have a family. And then we, we get up to kind of the top of that bell curve. And then we're there for a little bit. And then we start to go down. Our bodies start to fail. Our kids grow up. And we go down on that inevitable spiral that maybe we retire, and, you know, and maybe it's great for a while, but we start to lose the ability to do the things that we always wanted to do. And then we go down and we die. That's it. It's over. From a secular worldview, that doesn't make any sense. Why all this work up? Why try to get to the top when you're inevitably going to get to the bottom and everything that you do and everything you care about will be gone? Is it a wonder why people are scared of death? Is it a wonder why people are filled with anxiety because from that worldview, death doesn't make sense? Why do all these things to end up alone and dead? Yet despite the fact that I think we're afraid of talking about death in our culture. There's renewed interest in making, me, giving meaning to our lives and giving meaning uh, to death and understanding it. Uh, for example, there's been a number of uh, what have been called death cafes where people will get together. They'll have uh, cake, drink tea, uh, usually kind of a lighthearted thing, and they'll just talk about death. There's also been a number of attempts for people to kind of give meaning to their final uh, resting place. For example, uh, you can shoot your ashes into space. It costs $5,000 for one gram of, of cremated material, uh, but SpaceX is offering that and has actually sent 152 people into space. Uh, you can be transformed into a diamond. Uh, scientists can take the carbon from human ashes and turn them into diamonds that are identical to actual uh, real diamonds. You can have a digital tombstone. A Slovenian cemetery is uh, testing out digital tombstone with videos and pictures that can connect to your smartphone. Uh, You can be buried with your pet. They're called togetherness resting places. They reunite humans and pets when the time comes, as they say. Uh, you can become a memorial reef. Florida-based company called Eternal Reef mixes ashes together uh, with a reef ball, creating memorial reefs that can serve as family or habitats for sea life. You can have a living wake. Some people are doing this, having uh, a funeral before a person actually dies so they can come and say their final goodbyes. And finally, you can be buried at Disney World. Not legally, but this happens all the time. And just about every month, the workers have to go around and clean up the ashes because, you know, family members will take their ashes uh, or their, you know, their loved one's ashes and put them on um, the Haunted Mansion is a popular one or Cinderella's Castle um, or some or the Pirates of the Caribbean is another uh, popular one. You know, you look at all these things and 
I think what these things are are attempts to give meaning to an otherwise meaningless event. To try to give meaning to something that the world, in a world view, a secular worldview, doesn't make any sense. The truth is we're all going to die, each and every one of us. We don't want to think about that. We want to put that off, but that's going to happen for all of us unless Jesus comes back sooner. And I think there's two different extremes that we can take, two errors, I think, when we think about death. The first thing is we can kind of give in to this kind of morbidity and despair. And we think, you know, we walk around thinking to myself, well, it doesn't matter what I do. We're all going to die soon. You know, you've met people like that. They just kind of walk around with that glum kind of attitude. And I don't think that's a healthy place to be. But another unhealthy place to be is this idea that death is just a beautiful part of life. And we just need to embrace it and acknowledge the, the beauty of what death is. And I don't think that's in line with what we know uh, in, in our lives or in line with Scripture. But today I'd like to look with you for just a few minutes for, of kind of where we would like to end up. What would you like the end of your life to look like? In other words, what trajectory are you headed what, is, what are the elements of a life well lived? When you get to the end of, the, of your life, what do you want that to be like? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want to do to feel like you've lived a life that was worthwhile? Lewis Carroll's book, Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice goes to the Cheshire Cat and she says, Would you please tell me which way I should go? The Cheshire Cat says, well, that depends a good deal on where you want to go. And Alice says, well, I don't much care where. And the Cheshire Cat says, well, then it doesn't matter which way you go. If we don't care where we're going, it doesn't matter which path we take to get there. But if we know where we want to go, there's a path to get there. And that's the question I'd like for us to look at today. Where do we want to end up? Where do we want to end up in our final moments of life? What's the trajectory of our life going to be? And how do we get there? I think we can get some help from this passage that we're looking at today. In the passage that we're looking at today, uh, Stephen uh, is, gives his final speech before he dies, and we get a front row seat to the way that he dies. And I think as we look at his final moments, we can get a glimpse of what a life well lived looks like. Last week, remember, we talked about how uh, Stephen was preaching the gospel. And these people tried to, first they tried to argue with him, but they weren't all able to uh, win him by argumentation. And so they started to spread lies about him. And they instigated the, the leaders and the chiefs of the people um, to kind of turn against Stephen. And so they spread all these lies about Stephen that he uh, blasphemed God he didn't care about the temple. He was trying to change the customs of the people. And he spread all these lies about him. And so everybody turns against him. And the high priest asks him, in the first verse of this passage, the high priest asked him, so are these things true? Now, Stephen could have outrightly refuted them. He could have said, no, these aren't true. There's no element of truth to any of these. And if he would have done that... He probably would have had a better chance of going free. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he goes on the offensive in preaching the gospel. He goes on the offensive to bring his 
hearers to repentance. He gives the history of, of Israel, which we didn't read all of that, but he gives the history of Israel to show that the temple isn't as important as the people think that it is. And also to show that throughout history, God's prophets have been persecuted. And so rather than just give in and say, no, I didn't, you know, I'll just go on my way. I'll stop preaching the gospel. I didn't do any of those things. He goes on the offensive to preach the gospel so that his hearers might come to repentance. He accuses the uh, people and the religious leaders of being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. would have been incredibly insulting to those who heard. And it appears he doesn't even get through his message and the crowd just comes at him to stone him. And yet he's faithful to the calling God has for his life. And so that's the first element of a life well lived. It's being faithful to what God calls us to do. He was faithful even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of adversity. And for us as believers, if we're going to live a life that's a life well lived, we need to be faithful even in the midst of difficulties. We need to hold on to faith even in the darkest moments of our lives when it seems like there's no way out. We need to hold on to that faith. The second element that we see Uh, that's exemplified in Stephen's life is that he has this incredible union with Christ. And when I'm talking about union with Christ, I'm talking about a relationship with Christ. He has this incredible relationship with Christ. And he has put his faith and trust in Christ, and he loves Jesus so much that his life literally exudes the Spirit of Christ. His life parallels Christ in a number of ways. Ben Witherington gives ten reasons or ten different parallels between Stephen's life and Jesus' life. A few of them are, are these. Both of them appear in a trial-like setting. Both of them suffer of the testimony of false witnesses. Both of them mention the temple's destruction. Both of them speak of the temple made with hands. Both of them are charged with blasphemy. Both of them are asked by the high priest to speak. Both commit their spirits to God and ask God to forgive those killing them. He had a close, such a close relationship with God that people could literally see Jesus inside of him. They could see it in his life. And yet these people spread lies about him. They're enraged by what they hear him speaking. And they come at him to stone him. And in those final moments of Stephen's life, he cries out to Jesus, not just to the Father, but to Jesus, his Savior, the one who had died on the cross for him. And he says, Jesus, receive my spirit. And his final words parallel the words of Jesus. He says, don't count their sin against them. Just like Jesus said to forgive them, they know not what they do. Even in his final moments, he's emulating the life of Christ. But in his final moments, just before he dies, I believe a remarkable thing happens. Look at what it says in verse 55. It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now there's a number of passages in the Bible that talk about Jesus going to the right hand of the Father. A couple of them, Colossians 3.1 and Hebrews 8.1 we'll read here. Colossians 3, 1 says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Hebrews 8, 1 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. 
You see a difference between this passage and those passages. See, in other passages in Scripture, when Jesus is spoken of, of being at the right hand of the Father, they just say, He's at the right hand of the Father usually, or He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Here in this passage, it says that Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father. Now, that day and age, when a judge would give a verdict, what he would often do is he would get off of his bench and he would stand up. You see what's happening here? The scribes, the chief priests, the mob, they're so enraged by what is happening that they're willing to break laws. They weren't even allowed to execute people legally. And they're running at Stephen, picking up stones to throw at him. And they're saying, in essence, you are guilty, you are a blasphemer, and you don't deserve to live. And yet the true judge is up in heaven. And he's standing up and he's saying, that one's mine. That one is mine. I shed my blood for that one. That one is righteous because of my blood. I was watching the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And uh, it was Super Bowl where the Patriots were playing uh, the Falcons. And I'm going to get a lot of people to hate me here right now, but not him. I got a couple, couple fans here. I was rooting for the Patriots. And uh, I started off kind of, I, I liked the Falcons as well, so I was kind of, I started off kind of, uh, I don't really care who wins, slightly rooting for the Patriots. But I kind of kept it quiet that I was rooting for the Patriots because everybody else that was at the party was rooting for the Falcons. And so I'm just kind of sitting there on the couch, and um, that Super Bowl, the Patriots were losing by a lot. Uh, I think they were down by like 17 points in the fourth quarter. And I'm just sitting there, huh, I'm not going to say I'm a fan now. I'm just sitting there quiet, you know, kind of sad they're, they're losing. Then they start to come back, and I start to move to the edge of my seat a little bit more. Like, maybe they could do this. And I think it was when they scored to either tie or to move ahead by a couple. I wasn't even thinking about it. And all of a sudden, I just jumped up from my seat, and I was like, yeah! Thankfully, most of the people left by that point. <laughs> but you, you know, at the time when the game is on the line, you know, if you've ever been to, like, a Sabres playoff game, which doesn't happen very often. But I remember going years ago, you know, when the Sabres win the playoff, it's like the third period, game is on the line, and it's like nobody is getting hot dogs, nobody's getting a pretzel, no one's in the bathroom, everybody's there standing, supporting the team, waiting to see what happens. And I wonder if that's a little bit what this, like, this scene is like. It's like the third period. The game is almost over, and Jesus isn't sitting anymore, he's on his feet. I wonder what he might be doing. I wonder if he might be clapping. I wonder if he might be saying, Stephen, don't give up. You're almost home. I wonder what he might be saying in those moments. Reminds me of the closing scene of the movie Gladiator. Maximus has just defeated uh, the evil emperor of Rome, freed the nation from tyranny. But in the process, he receives a mortal wound. And in this final scene... He's kind of on the edge of consciousness, on the, just on the point before he dies. And check out what happens. I, I wonder if that's a little bit like what the scene is like in, in this scene with Stephen. He's at the final moments of his life. And just like in that scene, 
Maximus' family was standing waiting for him to come home. Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father saying, it's time. Come home. Ladies and gentlemen, this passage is not the record of a tragedy. This passage is a record of a way to die beautifully. What a more, could there be a more way to die, a more beautiful way to die than the way that Stephen dies? You see, a life well lived is a life that's lived in union with Christ. A life that's well lived is a life that's lived in union or relationship with Christ. Stephen was crucified with Christ. Jesus was his joy. Jesus was his passion. He's the one who he trusted in. And though he dies, yet he will live with Christ. And I ask for us to consider today, in your final moments, will Jesus be standing for you? Will Jesus be standing for me? Well, the good news is, if we're believers in Jesus, the answer is yes, he will be standing. If we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's not about our own efforts, it's not about our works, it's about what He has done. And so when we get to our final breath, He'll be standing there before the Father. He'll be saying, that one's mine. I shed my blood for that one. And He'll say to us, come enter into the kingdom of heaven that I prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And we'll enter into glory with Him forever and ever. I wonder if some of us, maybe we're believers in Jesus, but we've been living lives apart from Him. And I wonder if we'll get to heaven and He'll be standing for us. He'll say, come on in. But then when we get in, He'll be like, what were you thinking? Why did you spend so much time doing these things that didn't matter? Why did you live like the world? Why did you act as if death was the end? And we'll have to live with that regret. But the good news is, that can change today. No matter where we are at, and whether we have 50 years left or only a few moments, we can change that trajectory so that when we get to heaven, He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. And we change that directory by putting our faith and trust in Him. By making our relationship with Jesus the most important relationship in our life. But for others of us, maybe we're not believers. And if we're not believers, Jesus, unfortunately, will be standing. But he won't be standing as an advocate. He'll be standing as a judge. And the sad thing is, if you're not a believer, he'll be standing and he'll say, I never knew you. Note what he doesn't say. He doesn't just say, you're a sinner. Go from God's presence. He says, I never knew you. I wanted to know you. I spread my arms open wide. I gave my life for you. But I don't know you. What a sad place that would be. Jesus loved you so much that he went to the cross to die on the cross for all of us because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all broken God's law and we all deserve to be separated from him. And so he went to the cross, rose again on the third day so that he might be our advocate, so that he might stand with us in our final breaths and say, this one's mine. Come spend forever with me. 
If you're here today, you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, don't leave today without making that decision. The Bible says the way that we do that is by repentance and faith. Repentance simply means to turn from the direction that we're going, that we're going one direction, living life apart from God, doing things our own way, and we do an about-face turn and we follow Jesus and put our faith and trust in him. Faith means to trust someone. Uh, it, the, the biggest, greatest picture I see in Scripture is a picture of marriage. You know, you go to marry someone, and when you, you say your vows, you say, I'm committing to do life with you. As much as I know about you, I am committing myself to you. And that's a picture of what it means to put our faith in Jesus. It's saying, I'm committing my life to follow after you. If you'd like to do that in just a few moments, I'll give you the opportunity to do that, enter into a relationship with Jesus. Life well lived is a life that's lived in union with Christ. Final note about this passage is that this passage introduces a new character, someone we haven't seen yet in the book of Acts. His name is Saul. He's a young man, and they take the, um, the people who are stoning Stephen take their garments and they lay them at the feet of Saul. And Saul's going to watch how Stephen dies. Gonna, he's going to watch as Stephen cries out to God. He's going to watch as Stephen says, don't hold their sins against them. And just a short time after, Jesus is going to meet Saul in a powerful way. Going to transform him. Make him new. He's going to change his name to Paul. He's going to write good percentage of the New Testament. And then the Apostle Paul is going to one day say, for me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. I used to be living for those other things that I thought were important. Trying to achieve something spiritually. Trying to become somebody. But now, for me to live is Christ. If I keep going in the body, it means fruitful labor for me. And if I die, it's even better because it means that I'll be with Christ forever and ever and ever. Life well lived is a life that's lived in union with Christ. Let's pray. If you're here and you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that if you'd say a prayer with me. Uh, just silently in your hearts. It's not a magical prayer. Prayer doesn't save you. It's just an expression of your heart to God and the beginning of a relationship with Jesus. If you'd like to do that, you say something like this in your heart. Say, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I ask for your forgiveness. Say, I believe you died for my sins and rose from the grave. I turn from my sins and invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and eye closed, if you've said that prayer, I'm not going to make you raise your hand or anything like that, but if you said that prayer, I just encourage you, talk to a, another believer, talk to myself. We'd love to get you started in that journey of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that though we're sinners, though we're guilty in and of ourselves, that by faith in you, we can have the assurance that when we enter into eternity, you'll be standing for us. That you'll be crying out, that one is mine. 
I shed my blood for him. I shed my blood for her. And you'll welcome us into the kingdom you prepared before the foundation of the world for us. God, we thank you that it's not by our works, not by our own efforts, because we know that if it was by our own efforts, we'd all fall. Lord, I pray for all of us here as we all inevitably will have to deal with that topic of death. Lord, I just pray that first we didn't be encouraged to know that for us as believers, death doesn't have the final word. But also, I pray that we would be encouraged to make the most of our time. To realize that we're not just living for today. That what we do today impacts eternity. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your grace. We look forward to what you're going to do. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.